Hello, my name is Michael Banks, and I'm the host of Heroic Journeys from Crisis to Transformation. And my guest today is Nicholas Vizi. And I'm honored and delighted to have Nicholas with us. He uh, is the minister of the Aspen Chapel in Aspen, Colorado, and has been uh, the minister there since 2014. Um, and he is originally from England. And uh, Nick has had a very uh, interesting life, I would say. He's traveled the road slightly less conventional than many people. I've known Nick for almost 40 years, and um, I can attest to the fact that his, his journey has been uh, fascinating. And I'm very excited to, to have him on the show today so that he can talk about that journey and uh, hopefully dispense some uh, nuggets of wisdom that he's accumulated over time. Um, through that journey. And uh, so I want to say welcome, Nick. Nicholas. Delighted to be here, Michael. Great to be with you. Thank you very much uh, for being here. Um, it's, we were just talking about the last time we'd seen each other. It was only about five or six years, but that was probably the first time or the only time in the last 30 or 30 years or something. Um, something like that. Um, so, um, Nick, uh, you, before I even knew you, you were, as a young man, you were a copywriter with, uh, uh, I think, the BBC. You worked with Saatchi and Saatchi. And, uh, and then, of course, you went on to lead the um, rather controversial uh, Exegesis seminars. Um, and then I remember you driving a Jaguar, a, a successful businessman. And then the next thing I heard, um, as we lost touch, was that you were running raves in your church in Norwich, in Norfolk. Uh, what happened? I, I can't remember running raves, but uh, I, I mean, it's interesting. What happened was that, um, I, as, as you said, I'd um, been in broadcasting uh, and in advertising, and um, I sort of went on a, a holiday once to India and came back from that holiday. And it was there that I sort of went off on a, a spiritual journey. That's really what set me off. So I was about 25 when, when that happened. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to leave advertising. Uh, I'm going to go and, and, and do the whole spiritual thing. And it was then that I sort of got involved and, and did those seminars. And uh, we worked together for a while. And, you know, I, I, my whole purpose, you know, was to actually sort of communicate the, the understanding of the nature of existence that comes with a spiritual life. Um, and so I embarked on that. And then after about after 14 years, I found myself working in an office in Knightsbridge, as you say, driving in a Jaguar from Hampstead to Knightsbridge. And I thought, well, I'm back. I was wearing a suit. And I thought, well, I'm back in advertising. And it's not really why I'd left advertising in the first place to end up in the same old place. And I thought, well, you know, how do you, where do I go to talk about God, to talk about all those sorts of things? Um, and I thought, you know, I, I, I was never going to change my name to Prem Anand something or other. I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a Buddhist or anything like that. A yellow's never my color. I had my colors done and I, you know, I'm a winter, so yellow wouldn't have been my color. And when you think about it, you know, one of the few places you can go and talk about God and not be considered bonkers is the church. 
I mean, if I'm just generally going out and, you know, if I, I, as an ordinary person, I go up to someone, I start talking about God, you know, they very quickly beat a hasty retreat. They think, you know, this guy's on, you know, I'm really not going to talk to this guy. But if you start talking about God and they say, who are you? And I say, well, I'm a Church of England minister. They say, oh, how lovely. Come and have a cup of tea. So I realized it was a place, you know, where I could go. I could do the whole spiritual thing. I'd be paid for it. I'd have a house. I'd be respectable. Well, in fact, you know, my mother, who's put up with a lot over the years, you know, I went through all this sort of, you know, it was a disaster when I left advertising to go and join this sort of weird organization. So she was horrified at that. And then when I said, you know, I was going to, I had to break it to her gently that I was going into, into the church. So I said, I met her in London. I said, well, mum, the other day I, I went to church the other day. She said, well, how interesting. And then about a month later, I said, well, do you know, I met the bishop. She said, oh, that's very interesting. And then, then after that, I said, well, actually, I, I'm thinking of being a priest. She said, oh, couldn't you be a lay reader? Or something? Do you have to go all the way? And she was horrified. And then she went away. And I think she talked to all her friends. And they, they all said to her, how marvelous, how respectable. He's going to be a priest. Don't you realize that he, he's now back in the fold of respectability? So she then sent me a verse. And you know, we've been best of friends ever since. So... You know, it was, I decided that, that that was the place to go if I was going to do the whole spiritual bit. And, um, and so I, I literally, what happened is I, 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 you know, left the job I was working in, uh, that you were involved in. And I went and, um, uh, I went down to the local church, uh, which is All Saints Fulham. And I said to the, uh, the vicar, hello, my name's Nicholas Vizi. And I, I'm thinking of being ordained, you know, and he was great. He welcomed me in. And I sort of went down that route. And, uh, you know, it was extraordinary, really. It, you know, you look at it, when you look at the church, you think, you know, it all looks a bit bonkers. You know, people, you know, anti-gay and, you know, yogas from the devil and all these sort of weird stuff, you know. They, 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 it's very off-putting. But actually, once I got in, uh, I, it was almost, I, I discovered the contemplative tradition which is really meditation and it's totally accepted. And I just found myself in a place that I felt very at home in. Uh, everyone seemed to be okay with what I did. You know, I used to, uh, ran little seminars and eight week courses and stuff like that. So I felt very at home once I was there and got a nice house, got married, uh, you know, had kids, you know, the whole thing worked quite well for me in the end. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I remember my my own surprise when I heard that you'd become a Church of England uh, minister, and I just couldn't quite connect the dots. But but then you know now that you're talking about it, and in fact it's, uh, since then as well, um, I realised that you know my own experience of you, Nick Nicholas, is that you were always very inspiring, and you seem to have a desire to communicate with other people that was genuinely selfless it's completely like you didn't care about yourself it was just you had to communicate it was just a, com a compelling uh, passion of yours to do that it was your life force and actually i'd like to come to that later because it's I, i'm using that phrase and then i realize it's it's part of the name of your second book which we'll come to well i think that's i mean that is true i, I think I, I mean, I went off to India and I thought it was going on a holiday. 
you know, this, this girl said to me, you know, would you like to come off to India with me? And I, I said, great, I'd love to. You know, I imagine, you know, the Taj Hotel and all that sort of business. What I didn't realize is that we were going on a sort of trek that lasted 21 days up 14,000 feet, you know, where you had to take a trowel to go to the lavatory. It was one of those circular treks. You didn't come back to your hotel. You just carried on and you camped and you went all the way around. And I hated it. Really? And, you know, I got up, you know, to sort of uh, 14,000 feet. And I remember, you know, looking out there and, and, and it was at night. It was a full moon and the cloud line was below us. And these, these huge mountains were coming up through the clouds like icebergs. And I just looked out. I just thought, wow. And it was just an amazing sight. And, and when I came back, I, I, I didn't think much had happened. But my mother told me that when I got off the plane, uh, wearing Indian clothes and claiming to be vegetarian, she knew that something was up. And, and from that moment on, really, you know, it was all about the whole spiritual life. Now, I went to visit my friend in Bristol. I, he, I knew he was really into all that spiritual stuff because when he went and visited his guru in India, I'd bought his stereo off him very cheap. And so, you know, I'd, I knew that this, he, he, you know, that this was important to him. So I went and visited him. And I said, so what's it all about, all this spiritual stuff? And he said, well, you are in everything and everything is in you. I thought, well, that's a lot of help. Thanks very much. That's like a line out of the Beatles, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But he gave me a book. He gave me Paramansi Yogananda's Autobiography of a Yogi. And I read that and it was amazing. And I just sort of got that there was a spiritual realm. And from that moment on, you know, my whole sort of being was about, I mean, when you're a consumer and you're into spirituality, all you want to do is get enlightened. I mean, that's, that's the sort of bunts at the end of the uh, end of the road. You just want that, you know, whatever it is that you've read about. And, and so you do anything for that. You do meditation, you go and do courses and, and all that sort of business. And, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that, you know, after only about nine months of looking, I sort of had the experience I was, I was looking for. And I, I, I came out of this experience and it, and it was an experience of, you know, of, of universal consciousness, of, of oneness. I sort of recognized it and, and, and it sort of lasted about three hours. And I, I sort of came out of that experience and I, it's very difficult to know what to do when you've, you, you, you've had an experience. So that you think, was it true? Did I really have that experience? And, you know, for three days, I remember I didn't leave my room and, uh, and I tried to persuade myself that I hadn't had it and, you know, that it was all. But the truth is, it's a bit like, the way I describe it, it's a bit like, you know, you're going to Downing Street to have, have, have a drinks party with the prime minister. And, you know, you have this drinks party and suddenly in the middle of the drinks party, you decide you want to go to the loo. So you go to the loo and you open the door and there sitting on the loo is the prime minister. <laughs> But his head is on the ground. His head is off and it's on the ground next to him. And you look at him and, and, and he's got a Martian head. And you look at him and you know that he's a Martian. And he knows that you know that he's a Martian. And then you quickly shut the door and you go off back into the drinks party. And you say, well, what do I do now? Do I go in and tell everybody that the prime minister's a Martian? And they all say you're bonkers. Or do you just keep stum? And I'd had this experience of the nature of consciousness that actually there was a unified 
consciousness that that actually we were all part of the same consciousness and that you know that we weren't separate and you know all that sort of stuff and i had that decision to make which is do i go out and communicate that experience or do i just keep stum and pretend i haven't had it and i sort of felt it was my duty to communicate i felt it was my duty to go out there and say hey you know it's it's you know that we are all of one consciousness you know we are all the same and there is no point in fighting each other because that wonderful phrase from the Tao Te Ching that your your enemy is the shadow of yourself. And I just sort of felt that was important. And, um, you know, for me, uh, working in exegesis and, and that whole thing, it was an opportunity to communicate that. And, and when that sort of fell away in terms of an opportunity, again, the church was another opportunity to communicate that. And, you know, that's really why I'm in Aspen now, at the Aspen Chapel, because to some extent, you know, I've been in the... I was in the Church of England uh, working for nearly 20 years. And, you know, I, I, I'm a traditional immigrant here in America because I've come for religious freedom. That's the reason I've emigrated to America. Because, you know, in England, the church is a wonderful organization. But it's interesting that when you get ordained, you don't swear allegiance to God or Jesus. You swear allegiance to the Queen. And the church and the state are totally wound up together. And really the church is there to say, hey, you guys in the state, the Lord blesses you. It's all okay, you know, go to war, do this, do that, because we're all together. And if you look at, you know, recruitment in the First World War and Second World War, that's the church's role. And the, re the result of that is, is that you've got to tell the story of the, the whole Christmas story is being, you know, Jesus died for your sins and, you know, you've got, you, you've got to, you know, make it all okay and believe, you know, that whole story, which is, you know, not the way that I see it. You know, for me, the whole nature, the central nature of the gospel is the nature of you are in everything and everything's in you. The kingdom of heaven is within you. That really, that the, the, the central message is that there is one consciousness and, and that is the central idea. Now, if you communicate that in the church, it's acceptable, but you're very much on the fringe. They say, well, you're dealing with people who can't really take the proper message. You know, this isn't quite it, but you deal with all those people on the margins. You don't like the ideas of, you know, Jesus's salvation and stuff like that. So it's very much seen as being a fringe thing. It's not the sort of Jesus died for your sins and therefore you've got to believe in him and, you know, salvation comes through him. And, you know, Jesus is the only way to God and all that, you know, what I would call guff, you know, you've got to go with that story. And really one of the reasons I came here is that I don't have to go with that story here. I can go with the story, which is really that the central, that the Christianity is an Eastern religion, that actually the central message of the, uh, of the Christian gospel is the same as the central message of Buddhism, the central message of Taoism. Bede Griffith says that the, that the goal of all religions are the same. It is the one true understanding of the general nature of consciousness. And, you know, that's really what I, I want to communicate about. And that's really what I mean. I feel impelled to, I feel it's a duty to communicate that experience because you look at the news and, you know, it's as if that is completely not the case. You know, you just hear stories about people killing each other, about how there's not enough to go around, how America first, about this, about that, which is completely divorced from the idea of there being a central understanding or consciousness. I mean, you know, what is it going to take for the world to realize that? I mean, is it going to take an alien invasion? Or, or some ghastly, you know, climate 
disaster for us all to realize that we are one community and that you know china's problems are our problems and our problems are china's problems and unless we solve each other's problems then it's just going to continue the way it's always done and is that uh, what you just said um is that the message of your recent book um, yeah, my book, Living the Life Force, available uh, from August the 25th in, in England and on Amazon now and from all good bookshops, um, is, uh, yeah, it's, it's really a um, looking at the idea that, you know, is there a life force that fundamentally exists behind all things? And obviously I'm suggesting there is. Is there a life force? And, and you know, Einstein, when he came to America, this is an apocryphal story, but even if it's not true, it should be. When he came to America, Einstein was asked the question, you know, he was asked, what, what is the most important question you can ask about life? And Einstein thought, and he, and he replied, the most important question you can ask about life is, is the universe a friendly place or not? Because if the universe is not a friendly place, then we should spend all our energy, all our resources, all our money, all our understanding, in order to defend ourselves against the unfriendly universe and, and you know defense budgets you know do that if the universe is neither friendly or, or unfriendly it's really like you know shakespeare's as, uh, you know as we to wanton boys as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods they kill us for their sport then you know nothing really matters but if the universe is a friendly place then surely what we should do is spend all our energy all our understanding everything that we've got in order to understand how to cooperate with a friendly universe. Now, this book really is about asking that question, you know, is the universe a friendly place? And, and if so, how do I cooperate with a friendly universe? And it's really working out how one, you know, cooperates in one's life with the fundamental life force that maybe exists. And I think the evidence is, out, you know, it's definitely there that it does exist. You know, if you look, there's definitely a life force behind everything. You, you can see it in us, flowers, plants, and all that sort of business. But the big question there, then, is there, is there such a thing as God? You know, that, that's the big thing. And people say, oh, you've got to prove it, you know, and then people get out their test tubes and they get out their measuring equipment and say, well, you can't prove it. But, you know, quantum mechanics has changed that. You know, with quantum mechanics, what happened was, that when they were doing all these experiments with electrons, they realized that the observer affected the experiment, that there was a relationality between the observer, the scientist doing the experiment and the actual experiment happening. And the electrons were in different places depending on whether you observed it or not. Now, to me, that changes the game. That means that the whole thing is relational. And therefore, in looking at how do you prove that the, in the existence of, uh, you know, a, a, a fundamental life force or a spirit or whatever it is, we have to include our own experience. Our own experience is, what, is, is part of the, of the experiment. And, you know, for me, the proof of the existence of, uh, of that life force, of a universal mind or whatever, universal consciousness, whatever you like to call it, the proof of it is our ability to reach a point of complete peace within ourselves, even though our circumstances don't warrant it necessarily. I mean, and this speaks right to the subject that you're talking about here, about these traumatic experiences, you know, you with your kidney transplant, you know, it's possible to reach a point of peace with life that the circumstances 
do not seem to suggest would give a, uh, you know, as an experience of peace. And I, I, for me, that is the proof that one can reach a, a point of fundamental order in life that is in existence. I mean, you know, I, on the back of my book, it says, you know, the whole world seems ordered. You know, the planets go around, the sun, all that it seems. Odd. But when it comes to our personal life, the moment it really counts, it's chaos. You know, nothing works. You know, we get ill, we lose our money, our partners leave us. It's all chaos. And I'm saying, you know, is that really the case? You know, is, is it chaotic fundamentally? And I'm really suggesting that, no, it is possible to connect with that fundamental order of existence. And, and when you connect with that fundamental order of existence, you experience a deep peace. And that deep peace is, the, is your connection. You know, T.S. Eliot talks about the, uh, the, the, the still point in a turning world. And it's us connecting with that still point in the turning world. And really, the book is about how do you do that? And what are the implications of that? Um, as you're talking, Nicholas, I've got lots of questions. And um, <laughs> I'm currently dosed up heavily with codeine because I badly hurt my leg a few days ago. So I can probably only remember the last question that came up in my mind. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but uh, it's very interesting what you're saying because, um, and I'm pleased you, you actually made the connection towards the end then of what you were saying uh, with the theme of, that I am fascinated with and the theme, the reason I set this podcast series up is because of my own experience. Uh, yeah. I believe that I'm an expert myself in that transition from crisis to transformation. Now, if um, you're talking about reaching that still point um, and being at peace, regardless of the circumstances, and yeah. um, what occurs to me, one of the things that occurred to me is that. Well, it's more the form of a question to you, Nicholas, which is, would you say that finding that place requires a letting go into the, the simple reality and the what-so of what state you're in? If you, if you can, well, let me explain. If, um, when, when we hit the, uh, hit the proverbial, um, it's we we sort of struggle to find ways out of it and solutions, and perhaps there's a, a tremendous wisdom and magic in simply allowing oneself to experience all of the goodies that are available. Now I'll give you one example. Um, when I was, um, you know, when I was at death's door with my kidney failure, and uh, <laughs> Karen sat on the edge of the bed the day after that, uh, for the first time she saw me since my kidneys have failed. She sat on the edge of the bed and she said, Michael, is there anything I can do for you? I'll do anything for you. What can I do? And I said, can, well, can you give me one of your kidneys? <laughs> Which is a really brazen thing to ask. Um, and at that moment when she said, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I've got to think about it, but I think so, yeah. And you know, in that moment, I experienced the most amazing love I could possibly, this is another human being who I'm very close to. And, to, and, and my love for her just 
expanded exponentially in that moment when she said she was willing to do that. Um, and it wasn't a question of, oh my God, I'm finished. The rest of my life is, is done because I've got this, I've had kidney failure and I'm going to spend the rest of my life on dialysis. Um, I can have an early death, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and maybe that's not a good example, but did you get the, my question to you, which is about uh, sort of not trying to struggle with it? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, I like the idea that, uh, you know, God comes to us in the circumstances of our lives and she asks us to respond to her rather than the circumstances. You know, I think that, um, I think, I'll give you my whole philosophy of uh, yeah, the big picture, as far as I'm concerned, which is that I, the way that I look at it is that, you know, we are involved in the evolution of consciousness. The evolution itself, the all, of, all of evolution is a function of the evolution of consciousness. That right at the Big Bang, the Big Bang was an explosion of consciousness that came out in planets and, and all the stuff that came out at the Big Bang. There was latent consciousness within that. And that consciousness developed and, and through its own, you know, formed planets and the Earth was formed. And then gradually it sort of, the consciousness came out into single cell organisms and life. And, and you can even see, you know, in plants, there is a consciousness in terms of it's, they turn towards the sun and all that sort of business. And gradually the driver of all of evolution is consciousness. It's the evolution of consciousness. And really we, now 13.7 billion years later, human beings are really the flower of that evolution of consciousness. Not only can we look around and, and do that, we can self-reflect, which is the other amazing thing. And as evolution develops, you know, my son's evolution will not be an extra long thumb for texting. You know, that's not where evolution is going to go. But what will happen with evolution is it becomes the actual, the evolution of the nature of consciousness in reflecting on that greater universal consciousness that we're all a part of. And, you know, you've seen it in the, you know, the first axial age, which is, you know, Buddha and Jesus and Muhammad and all that sort of business. You know, they had experiences which they communicated about the existence of a universal mind, of a universal consciousness. And, you know, that is where evolution is going. It's going to that point that T.R. Deshantan referred to as uh, the, the omega point, where, you, you know, the, the sort of lay version of the second coming is where all creation recognizes itself in its existence. There is a general recognition of the nature of existence within all beings and things. And there is a moment when that happens. And we're moving towards that. So each of us, the, the way I look at it is that each of us is a part of that evolution of consciousness. I, I love the idea that, uh, that when you go from being a, a Neanderthal being to a human being, is when, you're set, when you have seven billion neurons in your mind. And it's interesting now, there are almost seven billion people on the planet. Yeah. And it's almost like there is now a planetary, you can see consciousness emerging. You know, you can see the evolution of racial consciousness, particularly important in America. You can see the evolution of gender consciousness. You know, and you can see the evolution of global consciousness. You know, conscious is developing. And as individuals, we are each of us individually a part of that. And each of us 
has a unique experience. We are uniquely who we are and we have our unique relationship with life. And yours has involved, you know, getting a new kidney and all that sort of business. Mine has involved my life. And each of us has that unique relationship with life, which has its own problems. And our role within that is to transform the pain that we feel and the issues that come in our directions to transform them into love. You know, most of the time, most of the time, when we feel pain, we say it's their fault. You know, it's the Jews' fault. It's the Mexicans' fault. It's the gays' fault. They're giving me the pain. Let's get rid of them. You know, blame. You know, and actually, the whole message is no. Actually, you know, if we can, if we can transform our pain rather than transmit it, then that's how consciousness is developing. It's what I would call emotional photosynthesis. You know, plants take, you know, the different bits and they create oxygen. We take that pain and then we are able to transform it into love. Now, that means that each of our journeys is relevant to the whole bigger picture of evolution. Because each of us in our own many little transformations of my relationship with my mother or my relationship with my partner or whatever it is, as we transform that, we're doing it on behalf of the whole. You know, and like that hundredth monkey, you know, if you know the story of the hundredth yeah, monkey, yeah, sure. you know, like that hundredth monkey, you know, you never know when the tipping point is going to go. Exactly. And, and so each of us has a journey that is, that, that it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Now, you know, I have to, I'm the first to say that in the spiritual life will not cure your cancer. It will not get, get you a partner. It will not make you have more money and all that sort of business. It's not about that. It is about being able to transform our experience of our day-to-day -day living through the deep experience of peace that, 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 that is there within us. And, you know, the way you do that is through practice, is through spiritual practice. You know, in meditation, you know, which is what I, you know, suggest, in meditation what happens is, you, you know, you, you come to a point where you simply allow that universal consciousness to come through you. You, you don't engage your own mind in what's going on. You simply allow it to come through. You're completely okay with how you are. And therefore, you are part of that evolution of consciousness. And that's how I see that really the big picture. I totally get it. I really do. And my question to you now, Nicholas, is if someone is listening to this who's, for example, um, had a, a member of their family, their beloved a member of their family who's passed away and they're traumatized with the pain uh, of the loss of that of that person who's so close to them um how do they take what you just said and practically translate it when i say practically but literally implement what you're just saying that awareness that you're talking about into transforming their pain into love well, I mean, I think the most important thing to say is that every single individual person and every single individual story is completely different. And therefore, every single person really, and it's a you know, difficult thing to say, but every single person has to find their own way 
through the difficulties that they experience. <clears throat> now, if someone has, you know, lost their partner or their mother or whatever it is, you know, you're going to experience grief. You're going to experience their emotion. There's going to be no getting away from that. And, you know, there are, you just have to, there are ways that one has to appropriately live life in order to live through that. You know, it is appropriate to cry. It is appropriate to have a lot of difficulty in those sorts of circumstances. It is appropriate. But what I'm actually saying is that there are, you know, there are tools beyond just the normal things that enable you to actually connect at a deep level with the source of being. And, you know, meditation helps with that. You know, reading other people's experiences helps with that. And, and people do have to find their own ways, you know, to, in order to get through. But, but I think it is interesting that each person's journey has meaning. That sometimes you think, you know, you know, my, you know, my wife has died or, or whatever it is has happened. And the whole of life seems meaningless. You know, it's as if everything has been taken away. And that, that is an appropriate experience. But if you sort of begin to, to, to think about the fact that possibly the way that you deal with that experience is going to make a contribution to those around you, the way that you actually move your way through it in itself, the pain that you're willing to feel, the pain that you're willing to transform, rather than saying it's all their fault, it's all the doctor's fault, so it's all, you know, whoever, whatever his fault is. You know, I, I'm suggesting that, that, that each of us has to find our way through that maze. And there's no easy way through it. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, and I think, I think we tend to look for tools. You've just talked about meditation. Um, you've also talked, um, what I'm hearing you say is people taking responsibility rather than putting blame, assigning blame to life, to circumstances, to other people. Uh, and then you go into this sort of negative slump, like, oh God, you know, life's dealt me a hard, uh, you know, deck of uh, deck of cards um but it's for those people who are in the middle of this how you know is it is it random i mean i actually had the benefit and this is interesting because there are, you talk about listening to other people reading about other people getting your inspiration uh seeing a way through through being inspired by other people i i was fortunate enough to have realized that i did have a choice about um, transforming my pain into love and that it was connected in certainly in my case to the uh, the pain was really an opportunity to open my heart because I became more vulnerable in acknowledging to myself how much pain I was in and that literally kind of opened me up to being able to love and be loved to a far greater extent than it was before so, but, but then I had the advantage, Nicholas, of, of knowing that I could experience, like you said, don't suppress it, don't hide it. You know, you have to go through it, it's reality. But I, I had the advantage of being, if you like, taught that, that, that what was possible by experiencing it fully. And a lot of people don't. And are you saying that they just have to come to it by, by trial and error or just they're lucky or... I, I don't know actually I mean I, I can only describe my own journey in pain which is you know the way I, I've experienced it in my life I mean my my uh, father died when I was two yeah 
and really that set me on my journey. Uh, you know, I remember my mother um, saying to me at a fairly early age, or that, you know, no, a bit later on in life, she, she told me that when my father died, when my father died, she said, my brother was six weeks. And she said that the milk dried in her breasts at that moment when my father died. And that was really symptomatic of what happened in our family in that my mother did everything she possibly could just to keep us going. You know, we had birthdays and Christmases, but there was something missing there. Uh, there was an understanding of love and affection that wasn't there. And, you know, the result of that is that I acted out. You know, I tried to, I did everything, setting fire to the garage. To, you know, I was awful in terms of behavior because I was fundamentally in pain. And then I went, was sent away to prep school and I had a dreadful time. I got fat, I was bullied. I, I, you know, was constantly in tears. I had a, you know, really awful time. And I remember making a decision when about the age of 12, I thought, well, I've had enough crying. I thought I am not going to experience emotionally. And I, I made it almost made a decision to stop crying. And I, and it worked. I stopped crying. I was able to read a room. I could tell when the conversation was coming towards me. I began to manage the whole, my life and my emotion. But you see, the difficulty is when I, when I stopped crying, I did stop. And you know, I've not cried to this day since from the age of 12. I can shed the odd tear in, uh, you know, in Toy Story 3 or, you know, anything like that. But really, I, I, you know, my emotions have been, it were cut off at that point. And, you know, what happened was that, you know, I went there, went to another school and I survived there and I came out. And it's a bit like, um, you know, not experiencing emotion at that level is a bit like, you know, trying to run a car without putting in any oil in it. I mean, at some point it's going to blow up. And I was, you know, came up dysfunctional, you know, with, with no, you know, connection with my emotions. And so, you know, my, uh, um, you know, my relationships really were about just getting rid of my feeling of pain. So I wasn't really able to connect with women at all. I couldn't really, you know, engage with them because all I wanted to do was, you know, just get rid of the feeling of pain that I had. You know, I, I smoked dope for the same reason, just because I felt pain. And, you know, when I smoked dope, I didn't feel pain. It was really self-medication. I didn't think, I thought everybody felt this. And it wasn't until later on I realized that everybody didn't. And really, it was a complete challenge to me because, you know, I was, I was really living dysfunctionally. Even after, you know, I had big experiences, I was still living dysfunctionally. You know, I was just living, you know, dysfunctionally person who'd had all these experiences. And really, I, you know, it, it wasn't until I was almost going to the church at the age of 40, and, and all I really wanted to do was to you know, meet someone, have a family, get married. You know, that, that was, and really what I was wanting was an experience of love. I was wanting somehow, and in a sense, you know, that drove me going to the spiritual life. You know, because, you know, I used to walk, when, when I was doing this, I, I was living in London, you know, and I was living this good old traditional sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle. But somewhere in me, I knew it was not sustainable. I used to walk past tramps and just knew I was going to end up there. All my, everything would go. And really, the whole spiritual thing has been a sort of healing process. It just came to me, a healing process. And it took years to go through it. And it wasn't until I started going to the church where I thought, well, you know, I've always had this huge desire for connection and love. And, you know, I've not got married. And, and I'm just going to, I'm going to give that up. 
And I sort of gave up to the fact that it wasn't going to happen. And of course, you know, funny enough, you know, three or four years later, I met my wife, we got married and had kids. And, you know, I, I went through that. You can't plan it. You really can't. You've just got to, you've got to, you know, live life on the understanding that the universe is a friendly place. And you've got to, you've got to live it on the understanding of, you know, how do I cooperate with it? How do I do that? And if your view is not one of blame, but one of how do I cooperate, the answers will come. It will come to you. Um, thank you for that. Um, that's a very, very powerful message. Uh, it's a bit like what I was sort of getting at earlier about, you know, if you just go with the flow, I know it's a bit of a cliche, um, but the universe is a friendly place. And if you cooperate with it, that's a very, uh, it's almost a revolutionary idea. <laughs> um, I, I, I think that there are, people can take comfort in that. But, but what's so interesting, Nicholas, is you say it takes time and you, you can't plan it. But I would suggest that there's uh, somewhere behind the eventual breakthrough or shift or transformation, somewhere behind that was an original intention or desire that you had to, as you said, find love. Because I had the same thing as you in boarding school. I remember in the junior common room, one lunchtime on my own at the age of 13, I was so distressed because of all the bullying and the teasing. And I actually stood there, I'll never forget it. And I said, it doesn't have to be like this. I was bawling my eyes out, I was furious. It does not have to be like this. And I made a decision then that it didn't have to be like this. Um, and of course, then I went through all the, all the stuff <laughs> just like you. Um, but there was an initial, an original impulse, a desire to find connection, to find the love that I wanted in my life. To well, I think that's interesting because, you know, I would, I would suggest, you know, just, I think it's always interesting to look at the bigger picture. You know, I, from my perspective, you know, love is the language of the universe. Now, what I mean by that is that basically my definition of love is giving with no expectation of a return. You know, when Karen gave you your kidney, she, you know, there's no return. Except you being around, there is a return. I'll give you my liver. Listen, I would say that the definition of love is giving with no expectation of return. And therefore, the universe was born with no expectation of return. It was born out of love. No one came to the universe and said, well, yeah, there's the bill. You know, no, the universe was given with no expectation of return. You know, we were given our lives with no expectation of return. No one comes up to us and gives us a bill. Well, they do in America if you're ill, but uh, no one comes up to us and gives us a bill, you know, for our lives. And, you know, it, our lives are given with no expectation of return. And so therefore, the whole sort of foundation the language of the universe is the language of giving with no expectation of return and therefore our role in life if we're going to be a part of that evolution of consciousness we have to engage with the universe on its own terms 
And the way that we engage with the universe on its own terms is by us giving with no expectation of return. Now, I'm going to come back you know, to meditation in this because for me, the med meditation is the classic example of how you give. Because you think, how do I give with no expectation of return? Now, in meditation, you actually practice giving with no expectation of return. Because in my perspective, meditation, if you, you know, following your breath and things like that, you don't do it to get enlightened. You don't do it to, to be in another state or another experience or to get anywhere. You simply do it in order to fully give your attention, give yourself to the universe with your mind not being involved, but just being in the present moment to give to the universe with no expectation of return. It's to give saying this is completely okay. That this moment is completely okay. My Strekot says the definition of meditative state, the definition of the meditative state is a state where you realize that you want for nothing and therefore you have no desire to will anything to happen. And you also acknowledge the fact that you know nothing. So his perspective in the meditative state is wanting for nothing, willing nothing and knowing nothing. So you're just in the present, not knowing what's happening, not wanting anything to change and not trying to make anything change. And that is a state of fully loving the universe because you're not asking for anything back. Now, that is a practice of what happens in life. Really, you know, in life, what we should do is we should, you know, realize that what we have is everything, that there's nothing to change. And therefore, and also we don't know what's going on. And that is the whole approach, I think, to, to living life. And that's why meditation is a practice to living life. And therefore, that love is at the foundation of it all. Um, it sounds like, maybe I've, I've got it wrong, Nicholas, but it sounds like if you are willing to be in that state, that meditative state of just giving, yeah. um, if you're willing to do that, doesn't it not imply that you have the courage, in a sense, to be that way versus desperately struggling to find solutions, which is a function of the mind uh, and it's a function of, of, of lack, of, of not having it all as it is. Um, and surely, isn't that where people find it very difficult to get into the state that you're talking about? Yes, I think, that, I think that's definitely true. I think, first of all, I want to say a couple of things. You know, you shouldn't give up taking your meds. That's an important <laughs> thing to say. Yeah, I'm not going to. And also, it doesn't mean you should stay in abusive situations. Mm. You, know, you know, you should, uh, what I'm talking about here in this thing, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is incredibly important. You know, you've got to get a roof over your head. You know, before you can engage in all this guff, you know, of, you know, transforming consciousness and the universal mind and, you know, you've got to get a roof over your head. You've got to get food to eat. You've got to get yourself in that space. Those things have to be met. And, you know, if you're, you know, if you're able to do that, and it is possible to do it without doing that, but I, I you know, I think that, you know, you know, you've got to get yourself into a place where you can engage at this sort of level, you know, where you're able to engage 
in, in, a, in, a, in a sense, to be able to sit down and meditate for an hour or whatever it is in a day, you've got to get yourself organized to actually do that. And I think that this doesn't mean that you shouldn't handle your life. You know, you shouldn't tolerate yourself being in an abusive relationship. You should get out of it. You shouldn't tolerate yourself being in a wrong situation. You should try to get out of it. You shouldn't just accept, you know, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that when you're in a, a place where you are, you know, conscious enough and, and, and in a sense, I, I love that def definition of wealth, which is wealth is the ability to appreciate experience. Wealth is the ability to appreciate experience. When you're in a place where you're able to appreciate experience, then, then, then this comes in and you can actually engage in this. Now, that's not to say that, you know, if you have got cancer or your partner has died, I think this particular perspective and this particular worldview does help those situations. It gives a context. It's all about perspective, I think. If your house is on fire, the first thing you want to do is put the fire out, right? If your house is on fire because the world has been invaded by aliens and your house is burning because the aliens are burning, you don't care about your house. You just want to get out. You know, you, it's about perspective. You know, what is the perspective you have on life? And I think to have a bigger perspective whereby your perspective is about the nature of consciousness, about the evolution of consciousness, I think it helps with the shitty little things that happen to us in our lives. So this is interesting. So it occurs to me that maybe, because I'm, I'm still asking the question, how does, how does the common man or woman uh, learn how to get through these very, very challenging times in their lives? And maybe what you're doing, Nicholas, in your work, in your community at the Aspen Chapel, maybe what you're doing is that you're providing a place where people can come to open their eyes and ears to that bigger perspective. Is that right? Uh, well, I think that is right. But I think also that there are millions of books about this everywhere. You don't have to be here or anywhere particular to do it. But I think something you said earlier is absolutely, is, is, is the most important thing, which is that your mind, you know, a lot of the issue with whatever problem you've got, whether it's bankruptcy or your kidney going or your partner dying, it is your mind that creates a huge amount of the suffering. And, you know, I think it was Ram Das that said that that tipping point is when you're, you go from your spiritual life serving the psychodynamics of your mind to the psychodynamics of your mind serving your spiritual life. That mm. is the tipping point. It is where your mind goes from being a survival instinct uh, that uses your spiritual life in order to survive to the mind going to be the servant of your life, to servant of your spiritual life. And, and, I, re I feel that that is so important to realize that you are not your mind. To really have your mind be, be able to switch it off, to not have that constant worry, to not have your mind debilitate your being. And I think that's where meditation 
really helps in those circumstances. It allows you to see the wood for the trees. It really allows you to be at peace and therefore to be able to not firefight and be able to make decisions out of a place of calmness and peace. And you can do that anywhere. You just have to really start on the journey. I mean, you'll go down to the local bookshop and there'll be six yards of book on meditation. It doesn't really matter where you start. The moment you start, you will, things will come to you as to, to what to do. But I, I would say, if we get to, to the subject that we're talking about here, I would say that the practice of meditation is a crucial element in moving oneself from a position of being a victim of circumstances to a place where one is at peace with circumstances. Wow. Um, <laughs> I, I've tried many different types of meditation. Nicholas. And um, a long time ago, I came to the conclusion, first of all, I understand what you're saying. I, a long time ago, I agreed uh, with the sort of the benefit of it and why it was important. Uh, I couldn't do a lot of the meditations that I tried. Uh, when I say I couldn't, uh, for various reasons, I didn't want to, I didn't want to apply myself, like learning the scales in a musical instrument, couldn't get into it. I ended up Coming to the conclusion, and I think this could apply to a lot of people, that a bit like Thich Nhat Hanh says, you know, the walking, the walking meditation. For me, meditation is being, truly being conscious any moment of any given day and being fully present in that moment and being able to self-reflect at that, in that moment. And, um, I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying that's, that's what suits me. Because a lot of people, are, they try some practice of meditation and then it, it doesn't work for them. I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, here, a lot of people will, you know, we've got a lot of mountains here and people walk in the mountains and say, well, that's my meditation. That's my chapel. Absolutely right. I mean, you know, not everybody sits on the cushion and does all that sort of business. I mean, for me, the key thing with meditation it is about your relationship with your mind. It is about your relationship with your mind. To what extent is your mind in charge or not? I mean, if your mind's in charge, there's work to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, really, if your mind's in charge, and the mind will want to do anything but not be in charge. It's like, oh, no, you shouldn't do no, Don't do this. You, you, you'll go mad and all this sort of business. You know, to, to the extent... you. I mean, I really think that, it, you know, our minds, right, our minds, I mean, how old are our minds? I mean, at the most, what can we say, should we say 150,000 years old, our minds, if you look at racial consciousness and, you know, the development and the way, probably 150,000 years old, your mind is, you know, you, you've had that passed down to you. You know, the universal mind is at least 13.7 billion years old. Now, you've got to look at the mind. This is, I think, a key thing. You've got your rational mind, which is what really we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. You've got your body mind. Yep. And your body mind is still a part of that. You don't know how you beat your heart. You don't know how your new kidney works. You don't know how all that stuff works, but your mind does. You know, you know, the body mind does. You know, how does a plant know how to grow? How does a seed know how to do that? How does an owl know how to catch a mouse? You know, there is a, there is a mind that is within that. And then there is a planetary mind that 
that, that you know, makes the earth grow, that will get rid of human beings if we're not careful, that the earth's going to be here, whatever happens, you know, the planetary mind will get rid of us if we become too irritating to it, it will just get rid of us. And then there is the universal mind. Now, the universal mind is the, is the fundamental seat of all consciousness out of which the whole universe emerges. Now, I'm suggesting that we hold on to our rational minds, you know, uh, you know till, till we're at death's door. And I'm suggesting the process of meditation that I'm describing is how if you do it, whether you sit on a cushion, whether you go for a walk in the mountains, whether, whatever you do art, whatever you do, we have sex, you know, is letting go of that rational mind and opening to the universal mind, that universal wisdom. And that is how, you know, we connect with that life force. You know, it's by letting go of our rational minds and opening ourselves to, for the universal mind to come through us. And that is how we develop the wisdom to be able to, you know, to be human beings that are helping with the nature of evolution. Well, on that point, um, I think we should uh, probably um, start to say goodbye for the moment, for the time being. Okay. Um, it's... Um, it's been fantastic, Nicholas, really has. And uh, there's so much for people to reflect upon on what you're saying. And um, I hope that people have actually had a bit of a shift going on here just by considering this, yes. uh, what you're saying. And I mean, that, and I agree with you, that's the most important thing. It's, it's not about what you actually go out and do, although that's important, um, but it is the degree, it's where, where the context out of which you do stuff. <laughs> And, and the perspective that out of which you actually uh, manifest in, in the world um, and towards others as well, which is crucial, of course. Um, and so um, can you just tell the audience again, the, tell them what the name of your book is and where to find it? How kind. Yes. <laughs> um, it's the book's uh, Living the Life Force. That's what it's called uh, by me, Nicholas Fizi. Uh, it's published by, published by Ozark Mountain Publishers, an American publishing company. I think it's scheduled. You can get the Kindle on Amazon right now uh, in the UK. It's available in bookshops here, but it'll be available in bookshops, I think, on August uh, the 25th in, in England and available uh, paperback uh, from Amazon on that date. I'm coming back to the UK in uh, January of next year. I'm going to do a couple of uh, book uh, launches, one in London, uh, one probably in Norwich, and so I'll do some uh, readings and stuff like that. Um, but that's that's how you can get it. Fantastic! In fact, uh, I'm excited because if you're going to come to Norwich, I'll invite a whole bunch of people along. Fantastic, Mike! I really appreciate that. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. In fact, I love your. I, I think people should also be aware that you actually publish your. Um, do you call them sermons? Well, no. I put my first book published is called Developing Consciousness. And Developing Consciousness, that's the first book. It was published in 2011, which is available again at all good publishers and on Amazon. Uh, that was published by O Books. And that really is a roadmap. What I would call, it's a roadmap of the journey to enlightenment. You know, when I first started this game, you know, spiritual game, I wanted to know, you know, what it was all about. You know, how do you get enlightened? What's the school? And you know, people say, well, if you read, meditate, you know, for two years or join my course or do all this sort of business, then you'll really understand what it's all about. And I just wanted to know, you know, what was the roadmap? What, what were the areas? What, and so I just identify the areas. I, I can't tell people how to get enlightened because, you know, who knows? But it's about the nature of consciousness. It's about the nature of the mind.
mind. It's about the nature of one's spiritual practice. You know, it's about spirituality. And so I really identify, I did a course, uh, 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 which the book's based on, and it really looks at the nature of how, you know, it all works. And in both the books, I use sort of examples from my life and stories and stuff like that, just to make it a bit more interesting. Okay, because um, I've, I've seen your sermons or speeches or whatever you want to call them from the Aspen Chapel. Because the Aspen Chapel. Yes, Chapel's you can website, get And they're fantastic. The last one I heard, I was so impressed. I really was. I mean, you've always been a good speaker, but that one was just not my socks off. I think I might have left a little note and feedback or comment or something. Well, that's very kind, Michael. I mean, you can, yes, I, there is a. The messages each week are on, uh, you can get them on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, if you go to iTunes and go to the Aspen Chapel uh, podcast, then each week uh, the message I do is delivered to that uh, podcast. You can get it directly on your iPhone. Or if you go to the Aspen Chapel website, you can see the whole service or our YouTube website. Again, you can see the whole service, which includes the, uh, all the other stuff that goes with it. But you can just get the messages. Okay, brilliant. And I'm greedy because I want you to say one more thing. And I'd like you to leave everybody with uh, one more piece of wisdom or advice based on, if you look at the gestalt, if you like, of your life, what is the one thing that you'd like to uh, say to people? Maybe you've said it already. So... You can always repeat it. Based upon my life, what's the way? Well, I think, you know, don't give up. You know, don't give up. I mean, the fact of the matter is that, you know, in every single moment of every single day, it's never too late to become the person you might have been. It's never too late to become the person you might have been. And I, I really think, you know, I, I really believe that. Uh, uh, George Eliot said that. And the idea that, you know, you've always got that opportunity to open yourself up into that amazingness, however shit life may be at the moment. You know, there is always that opportunity to do that. Great. On that wonderfully positive note, thank you. Thank you, Nicholas Vesey. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And um, I will say goodbye to you now. And we'll be in touch. Hopefully, I'll see you in Norwich in January. Let me know. We must stay in touch so I can actually know when you're coming over and uh, invite crowds and crowds and crowds of people. Well, maybe not crowds. Michael, thank you very much. I really appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate the opportunity of uh, being able to, to talk to you. Absolutely lovely to do that. And thanks very much for, for giving me this opportunity. You're very welcome, Nicholas. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care.